Well, if you could open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, end of Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 7. As you turn there, let me ask you a question. How many of you, looks like a lot of you have been, I recognize a lot of you, you've been here for a long time. How many of you have ever heard a sermon on Melchizedek? I got one. Ah, A couple. Good. I'm glad. Um, This is not a subject that comes up overly often. People who preach topically don't usually preach sermons on Melchizedek. Uh, People who preach expository, going book from book, they're not often going to preach about Melchizedek either. And here's why. Melchizedek shows up in three books. Anybody know who those three books are? Hopefully you got one of them. Hebrews, right? We're here. (laughs) Hebrews and Genesis and Psalms, right? That's it. So that's it. And in Genesis, one time, and Psalms, one time, and in Hebrews, a bunch of times. That's it. So you got. So uh, not a topic that comes up overly often, uh, but it's still in God's Word. It's still important, and we're going to consider it tonight. I have 27 pages to cover and not a lot of time to do it, so we got to get going here. All right, so Hebrews chapter 6, and uh, we are going to pick up in Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, let's just pick up at 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed them who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for, we, for he was still in the loins of his father Melchizedek when he met him. And I think we will stop there for the sake of time. All right, so today we're going to enter into the fascinating and wonderful uh, topic about the person of Melchizedek and his relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, first thing we should say is the main point is that there is some relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus in a kind of typological aspect or something typological. You look at Melchizedek, you should see Jesus. And the main point of the author of Hebrews is that the Genesis narrative shows us that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then by deduction, he is greater than everyone who came out of Abraham, especially the Aaronic priesthood. And therefore, Jesus' priesthood is better than the Aaronic priesthood. 
So that's the main point. Uh, but there is some details here that we should consider, and we should not just gloss over it. I mean, if the author of Hebrews wanted to say that, he could have said that in a paragraph instead of writing all the details that he did. So the first thing we have to realize is that the author of Hebrews, I'm just going to call him Paul. Maybe you don't think it's Paul, but I'm just going to call him Paul. Uh, Paul has been wanting to get to this for quite some time. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 5, he begins the topic of connecting Jesus to Melchizedek in some way. But then he stops. And we saw that before. He stops and he says, I want to talk to you, but you guys have become spiritual babes and you only like milk and you can only receive milk. And this is a meaty doctrine and I don't think you can receive it. And then that's where we get the, from chapter 5 and chapter 6, we get all about the apostasy passage, and he warns them and says, hey, you're spiritual babes, you might go apostate, I hope not, essentially like that. Uh, Then he encourages them positively and says that we need to inherit the promises like those who inherited in the past. And those who inherited in the past have always inherited the promises through two things, through faith and through patience. And then he gives Abraham as an example of someone who inherited the promises through faith and through patience. And now, from chapter 5 all the way into chapter 6, now finally in chapter 7, he can get back to the topic that he wanted to, which is namely the relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus. Now, what that shows us is this. This sermon is not for spiritual babes. Because that was the whole point. He wanted to talk about this, but they were spiritual babes. They could only receive milk, so that's why he felt like he had to warn them and wasn't even sure he was going to be able to bring it up, but he ends up bringing it up. So what that means is this topic that we're going to talk about is not milk. It is meat. So if you later complain to me that this sermon was meaty, sorry, that's just how it goes. This is a meaty sermon because it's a meaty topic. And so sometimes there's the milk of the word, and sometimes there's the meat of the word. The milk of the word is the basic doctrines of the gospel. And he lists that. If you go back to chapter 6, you can see that list. It's that basic doctrine of repentance, of faith, of baptism, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection, the age to come, things of that nature. But sometimes we have to get to the meat of the word. And the meat of the word is the mature teaching for mature Christians. Now let me say this. When it comes to the meat of the word... Oftentimes, these meaty topics have less data. There's not as much scripture. As I I said, when it comes to Melchizedek, we have three books. Genesis, tiny little passage. Psalms, tiny little passage. And then we have a little bit of Hebrews. The main text is here that we have here. We don't have that much data. And what this means is, is that Christians often disagree where there's little bit of data. But when it comes to the milk of the word like salvation through faith alone and those things like that, they show up all over the place. So Christians don't usually disagree on those doctrines because they're so clear. So what that means, like I said, because this is a meaty doctrine, and because there's not that much about it, then we're just going to have to be patient with one another and recognize that we might end up agreeing to disagree. And that's fine, because sometimes we have to do that. But we have to allow each side to be heard, and ultimately all I ask from you is one thing. Be a Berean. Ultimately, study the word for yourself and come to your own conclusions. If you have a different view than mine, that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. There is no infallible pope. I'm certainly not the infallible pope, and you're not the infallible pope either. And if you can show me something, I would love to hear it, and hopefully I can show you something as well. Okay, so let's think about Melchizedek. I want to show you the different answers that people have come to the question of who is 
Melchizedek. Who is his identity? There's five different answers that I found throughout the history of the church. One, he's simply a man who is a type of Christ. He's just a man, just a normal guy, flesh and blood, same mom, same dad. He's buried in the ground somewhere here, right? He drank water, he ate food, normal guy. Special guy in the sense that he's a godly man, but just normal guy, just like me and you. And he somehow represents Jesus. You can think about Joshua in this way, right? Joshua was a regular guy, and yet he's a type of Christ. Joshua conquered the land, and Jesus is conquering the earth. See, it's a typology. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's fine. So answer number one, he's a simply a godly man who's a type of Christ. Answer number two, he is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He is a Christophany. He's the appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament before his incarnation. Answer number three, he is the Holy Spirit incarnate. And answer number four, he's some kind of angel. Answer number five, he is the power of God, whatever that means. Something Gnostic about multiple powers and it's weird. So of those five answers, we can probably knock off three of them immediately, okay? No one seriously thinks, at least today, that he's the Holy Spirit. What evidence do we have that Melchizedek is the Holy Spirit? Zero. It's just not a good conclusion. So he's not the Holy Spirit, okay? What, what evidence do we have that he's an angel? Nothing. Nothing. Interesting enough, I looked at uh, Catholic answers. I was curious what the Catholics say about this. They say he's a man or an angel. Interesting. I didn't know that. Apparently they think he's an angel. What evidence do we have that he's an angel? Zero. I'm just going to scratch that off. And what evidence that we have that he's some power of God? We're not Gnostics. I don't even know what that means. So certainly not. So the only real viable views here is that he is a regular man who's a type of Christ, or he is, in fact, the pre-incarnate Jesus. So with all these various answers, you can see that people come to all these various conclusions, and we don't want to fall into vain speculation. We don't want to just go make up whatever feels right to us, right? And people who say it's the Holy Spirit, I think this is that vain speculation, or angels, the power of God. It's all that vain speculation. We don't want to do that, but rather we want to stick very closely to what the text says itself. I would say the most popular view today, and probably most of you in this room, if I were to ask you, who is Melchizedek, and what is his relationship to Jesus Christ? The most popular view seems to be today that he is a type. He's a regular human, Canaanite priest, who is a type of Jesus. And at least according to one commentator I saw, that is the overwhelming, I shouldn't say overwhelming, that is the majority view of the church, namely that he's just a normal human who is a type. But there's always been an also a minority view in the church that he is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. So who's right? You can see that those are mutually exclusive positions. He's either a regular person or he's a pre-incarnate Christ. He can't be both, and we can't both be right. Last point of clarification. Nobody's salvation depends on this. Hopefully you know that. This is not a salvation issue. This is not, a sec- this is not even really a secondary issue. Nobody should divide the church over this issue. But it is in our text, and we have to dig into the text. So here's what we're going to do. The first thing I'm going to do is we're going to examine, actually before we get to the text, I think it would be fascinating... I certainly was interested in this. What did the Jews think about Melchizedek? Isn't that interesting? I mean, they had this. It's in two of the books of their Bible. So wouldn't it be interesting to find out what the Jews thought about Melchizedek? And I think it would be much more interesting to think about what the Jews thought before Christ, not after. I really don't care what Rabbi so-and-so down in Jerusalem thinks about Melchizedek today. Completely irrelevant. 
But what did Rabbi so-and-so back in the Second Temple Judaism think about Melchizedek? Now, that's much more interesting because that's the background of the New Testament. All right, so let's look at this. So what did the Jews think about Melchizedek? Well, Josephus, hopefully you know that name, he understood Melchizedek as a Canaanite chief. So that's that first view. He's just a man. He's just a Canaanite chief. Philo, he identified Melchizedek as the Lagos of God. Does anybody recognize that word, Lagos? The word of God. John 1.1, 1, 1, what does it say? In the beginning was the Lagos, the word. He identified uh, Melchizedek as essentially Jesus. I mean, that's what he did. That was the Lagos of God. Uh, this writer, not very popular or familiar, he's the Salvatic Enoch. It's a very obscure book. He identified Melchizedek as the wife of Ner, who's the supposed brother of Noah, and it's really weird. Melchizedek is a virgin-born child of, of Noah's uh, brother's wife, and he comes out like perfectly uh, formed and talking, and he survived by being uh, survived the deluge by being uh, put into the Garden of Eden. All kinds of weird stuff. Let me just not go into more details about that. They thought he was some superhuman person. He's a regular human, but he has like these superhuman things. Really weird. We can just scratch that off. Okay. Uh, another view: the Dead Sea Scrolls. They identified Melchizedek as God. They, they identified, just like Philo, Melchizedek as God. And, and listen to this. They thought that Melchizedek was going to one day make atonements for the sins of his people. And they also thought Melchizedek was going to return to judge the nations. Does that sound familiar? Is it Melchizedek atoning for people's sins. He's God. He's going to... Judge the people, return and judge. Sounds like Jesus Christ. And then the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls community also was diverse. And they also, some said that he was an angel or maybe even Michael the archangel. So from that little uh, quick survey, what you find is pretty much every single view that Christians later came up with, the Jews prior also came up with those same views. You see that? They thought some said he was a Canaanite priest. Some said he was essentially Jesus. Uh, some said he was a God, Jesus, the Lagos. Some said he was some kind of superhuman weirdo thing. And some said he was an angel. So essentially you have all of those views back into the Old Testament. One last um, uh, little caveat is this idea, sometimes we in the West can be very anti-supernatural, right? Anything that's like supernatural that we don't really have to believe, we just don't believe. But that's not really the biblical worldview. The Bible is full of supernatural things. This idea of a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, hopefully you all believe that, right? Hopefully you all believe this is not some kind of like weird thing that never shows up in the Bible. Think about Adam. You remember when Adam, he walks in the garden with God. You remember Abraham, he eats with God. Jacob, he wrestled with God. Manoah, he met the angel of the Lord who is God. Gideon met with God. Balaam was nearly killed because he met with the angel of the Lord, which is God. You remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fire? Who appeared? One like a son of God. So this idea that there is some kind of Christophany or theophany, everybody believes that. The only question is whether Melchizedek is, in fact, a Christophany or a theophany. Now, one last little piece here. I would say that every single theophany in the Old Testament is, in fact, a Christophany. And the reason I say that is because the New Testament is explicit that no one has ever seen God. That is God the Father. And yet people saw God all the time. 
in the Old Testament. You can't read the Old Testament without seeing that people saw God, and yet no one ever seen God, at least God the Father. And my solution to that is, and with many others, is that they saw Jesus Christ. They saw God, but they saw the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who's the Word of God, who reveals God. And that's also why most of the theophanies in the Old Testament are the angel of the Lord. We don't have time to get into this, but the angel of the Lord almost always, if not always, is Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. So when you see that, you should be thinking, oh, we should highlight that. Say, here is Christ. And so most of the appearance of the theophanies are, in fact, the angel of the Lord, which most of us would agree is a Christophany. So I'm going to argue that all the theophanies in the Old Testament, I don't know one exception. If you find one, okay, maybe, maybe there's an exception, but the vast majority, if not all, I would say all, are, in fact, Christophanies. So let's uh, go into our text and to think about this. One thing I should say is on uh, immediately, some would object immediately to the idea that Melchizedek could in fact be a Christophany or Theophany, because they say when Abraham met with uh, Melchizedek, he doesn't appear to recognize that he is in fact a Christophany or an appearance of God. He seems to talk to him like a normal person. There's no bowing down or any immediate recognition that for Melchizedek, that in fact is talking to the Lord. And they contrast this with later on, do you remember when Abraham met the three persons, he realizes immediately that he's talking to the Lord. And they would say, look, Melchizedek can't be a Christophany because Christophanies are immediately recognized and Abraham doesn't immediately seem to recognize Melchizedek. Is everybody following that train of logic? Okay, now here's a problem with that. There are two cases at least where people are talking to the angel of the Lord and don't realize it. One case is Manoah, another case is Gideon. We simply don't have time to look at this, but I have it right here. You can look at it for yourself. They talk to him they have a long conversation, then they offer something up, both cases, Gideon and Manoah. They offer something up, and then all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord, who's in the appearance of a man, goes up with the offering and disappears. And they both have the same reaction. They say, oh no, we've been talking to the angel of the Lord. We've been talking to God, and we shall surely die. Okay? So there are at least two cases we have here where people are talking to the angel of the Lord for quite a long time, don't realize it until he disappears. So it's simply false to say that if someone doesn't immediately realize that they're talking to a Christophany, that it's not a Christophany. Okay? The other thing is, is when we get to the scene of Abraham and Melchizedek, one could argue that, in fact, Abraham did realize that Melchizedek, in fact, was a Christophany. Why do you say that? Well, he did give him tithes. And who deserves tithes? Well, priests deserve tithes too, but so does God. Remember Jacob? He says that I will give to you, God, tithes. So again, I think it's not necessarily the best argument to say that we know um, that uh, Melchizedek couldn't be a Christophany because Melchizedek didn't, I mean, Abraham did not immediately recognize Melchizedek. I would say that, I just don't think it's a good argument. The second argument that one could say, just immediately, there's no way Melchizedek could possibly be a Christophany. The second argument one could raise to that is say, well, wait a second. Melchizedek has a name. But the angel of the Lord, what's his name? Remember people ask the angel of the Lord, what is your name? He says, why do you ask me that? It's wonderful. Right? You think about the commander of the army of the Lord, what Joshua met, which is another Christophany. He didn't have a name. He just has a title, the commander of the Lord's army. Jacob wrestled with a man. Again, he asked his name. Why do you ask my name? Too wonderful. So all the other Christophanies, which I freely met, there is never given a name to the Christophany, right? You don't have a name for the, the fourth man in 
uh, in the fire pit in Daniel. And so Melchizedek is a name. The other ones don't, so therefore Melchizedek can't have a name. Well, here's the problem with this. There is many parables in the New Testament that Jesus gave, and none of them include a name except one. Anybody know that parable that has a name? Lazarus and the rich man. Some of you don't think that's a parable. That's fine. I'll tell you the vast majority of scholars think it is a parable. And so just simply saying, well, because every other parable in the Bible doesn't include a name, and this one parable does include a name, therefore this can't be a parable, is not really a good argument. Because if Jesus wants to include a name in one of his parables, he's free to do that. There's no rule that says he cannot do that, especially if he has a good reason for doing that. And by the way, I think one of the good reasons is that Lazarus, the guy in the parable who came back from the dead, reminds you of who else? Lazarus, who died and came back from the dead, and then people still didn't believe and tried to kill him. I think there's a reason, there's a connection between why Jesus actually names Lazarus in that parable. And I would say the same thing here, that there's a reason why God names this Christophany he doesn't name the others, and here's why. Psalm 110 says Jesus is going to come after the order of Melchizedek. Pretty hard to identify someone if you don't have a name. Does that make sense? Melchizedek is going to be referenced over and over in Psalm 110 and tons of times in Hebrews, and you can't do that if, in fact, this person doesn't have a name at all. All right, let's get into the text, Genesis 14. So turn over to Genesis 14, and we're going to look at Genesis 14 and see if we can get any details about the identity of this Melchizedek. Very small passage, very tiny passage, Genesis 14, 17 to 20. Let me give you a setting here. Abraham has just defeated multiple armies, and the king of Sodom has tried to give him a bunch of treasure. And he says no. So this is Genesis 14, 17 through 20. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedomah and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God most high, who has delivered all your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. And that is it. That's it. That's all you got. He just shows up out of nowhere, right? There's all these kings. He just had the defeat. There's all these kings. No reference to Melchizedek before this. No reference to uh, Melchizedek after this. It doesn't seem like Melchizedek partook in the battle at all. He just shows up completely randomly in the text, and he's meeting with Abraham, and he's called a king of Salem, which we're going to look at what the names of these things mean. He brings out bread and wine. Where have you heard that before? We only do it once a month. I know, but we do it, right? He brings out bread and wine, and he gives it, and he's called the priest of the Most High God. And he's also king. He's a king priest. This is that typology of Jesus, a king priest. Now, if you go into the Old Testament, you're never supposed to have a king and a priest. The king's over here, the priest's over here. And yet this guy is a king and a priest in the time of Abraham, shows up out of nowhere at all, brings out bread and wine, blesses Abraham. Abraham, some, something about this person is spectacular to Abraham. We're going to see that. He's the greater. He's somehow greater than Abraham. And so Abraham gives tithes to this man. And then he disappears as fast as he arrives. He's gone. So who is Melchizedek? Well, I would say this, that if all I had was this text, again, I would not be dogmatic. 
I would not be pugnacious about it. But if all I had to this text, I would conclude, in fact, when I did read this text for the first time, I would conclude that Melchizedek is, in fact, a Christophany. He has all the appearances of a Christophany to me. Christophanies show up. They do amazing things. They're, they're honored and respected in this way, and they completely disappear. Think about Christophany. That's always how it shows up. They show up, and then they completely disappear. Let me give an example. Remember Joshua met the commander of the Lord. Now, suppose you thought that was a human being. I don't know anyone who thinks that, but suppose you thought that. Well, again, it doesn't seem that way from what the reaction of Joshua, and he shows up, and he completely disappears. You remember that? It's exactly the same way in my mind of all Christophanies, and I would say the same thing here as well. But again, that's not conclusive, uh, but that's what I would argue. I would think that the data in my mind, if all I had is Genesis, would point to the fact that he's a Christophany. All right, so let's move into Hebrews chapter 7, the text we want to get to. Hebrews chapter 7, who is Melchizedek according to this text? Because this is the text that actually interprets everything else. Psalm 110 says that Jesus is going to be in the order of Melchizedek. So not much there. That's why we didn't go there. Not much there. Just that the Messiah somehow is going to be related to Melchizedek and his order. And Genesis 14, again, we saw it. We looked at it. Not much data. I would probably lean very slightly that that he was a a, a Christophany in that text, but you don't know. Hebrews 7 is the text that tells us who is Melchizedek. So let's look at it. Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also of Salem, meaning king of peace. So the first thing we notice is this. The author interprets the name. Who is this Melchizedek? And he says we can find out things about Melchizedek by looking at his name and where he's king of. And he says that these names and this designation symbolizes a spiritual reality about Melchizedek, namely two things. He's the king of righteousness and he's the prince of peace. Now, if we weren't having this discussion right now and I were just to sneak up on you sometime and ask you, who's the king of righteousness? Who would you say? especially Prince of Peace, right? I'd say, who is the Prince of Peace? You would say, obviously, Jesus. So my first point of evidence is, these are the titles of Jesus. And what's going on here is that Melchizedek, according to the author of Hebrews, his name has a meaning, and his kingdom has a meaning. Namely, he has the very titles of Jesus. Okay, let's let's continue to go on. He goes on to say, he's without father, he's without mother, he's without genealogy, he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, once again, if we were to take that literally, and it doesn't say take it figuratively. Now, we can take it figuratively, and many do, and you might be right. But it doesn't say this is figurative. If you were to take that literally, would you agree that this has to be a Christophany? The only person, or put it differently, every Christophany is without father, is without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And I would say, if this text is taken literally, and I don't see any good reason not to, I know you guys are waiting to get the next part, we will get there, then I would take this as a Christophany. Right? Now, some say, and they might be right, I'm not disparaging this view at all. I've actually held to this view before. I've gone back and forth on this view. Some would say, no, 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 it does not say, or it doesn't mean, should I say, it does say, we have to admit, it does say without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days, nor end of life. That's what it actually says. But what some would say, well, yeah, but here's what he's saying. He's saying in the book of Genesis, 
it doesn't mention a father. In the book of Genesis, it doesn't mention a mother. In the book of Genesis, it doesn't mention a genealogy. In the book of Genesis, it doesn't mention his birth. It doesn't mention his death, right? And they're saying, this is just typological. Again, that might be right. I'm not going to despair the view. It might be right. But I would simply argue, well, would anybody conclude that because... Melchizedek is not mentioned anything about his mother, father, genealogy, beginning of life, or end of days. Would anybody conclude from that lack of information that he, in fact, had no mother, had no father, had no genealogy, had no beginning of days, or had no end of life? Would anybody come to that conclusion? Now, before you answer that question, do you know that Elijah, at least I was told, maybe some of you proved me wrong, but Elijah is never told about who his mother is, who his father is, what his genealogy is, or when he was born or when he died. Okay, so let's just say I'm right about that. Would anybody conclude, based on that silence, that somehow he's an eternal person or somehow that he doesn't have a genealogy or so forth? I would say no. And so what I'm simply saying is I think that that interpretation runs into some difficult, at least for my conscience, of how, this, how one could make that gap. How could that silence possibly indicate that when if he's human, we know he has a mother, we know he has a father, we know he has a beginning of life, we know he has an end of days. Now, I will admit... The most difficult part of my view here is that last part that I haven't read, and I'll read it now. It says that he is with neither beginning of days nor end of life. He's made like the Son of God because he remains a priest forever. And some would say, and rightfully so, they would say, look, it says he's made like the Son of God. It doesn't say that he is the Son of God. Therefore, he must be, in fact, a typology and a regular man. And again, they might be right about this, but here's what I would say to that. What in Daniel chapter 7, it says, I saw one like the Son of Man. You know that text? One like the Son of Man. Who would take from that text to say Jesus is not actually a Son of Man? You wouldn't, would you? In Daniel, when you see, it says that I saw one like a Son of God. Who would take from that text that the figure that showed up in the fiery furnace of Daniel isn't the Son of God? He's just like the Son of God. He can't be the Son of God. I would say no. The fact is that this phrase, like the Son of God, does not necessitate that, in fact, he isn't the Son of God. He's just saying, look, there's similarities between Melchizedek and all of this divine personage and him being a divine person, and that's like Jesus Christ. And my interpretation of that is saying, get the connection. He's like the Son of God because he's an eternal person, just like the Son of God's eternal person, and he's going to say, I hope the bells are ringing. I hope you're going to make that connection. Now, some of you might not be convinced. That's fine. Another view that I recently heard, that that was interesting, is from uh, Greg Bonson. And reformed person, I'm, sure, I'm not sure if you know him. I was surprised that he held this view because most reformed people don't hold this view. Okay, this is true. I'm just being honest. They don't. But Greg Bonson, who's reformed, actually did hold this view. And he said this, and I that was interesting. He said, if Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate person, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, and the Son of God here refers to the incarnate Son of God. And so he's saying that the pre-incarnate Christ resembles the post-incarnate Christ, and the fact that both remain a priest forever. Now, if you try to wrong, I want you to think about that. Who is the forever priest? Who has always been the priest of God? Who's always been the king? Jesus. Jesus is the forever king. Jesus is the forever prophet, and Jesus is the forever priest. Even if you don't buy that, who was the priest of the Old Testament that reconciled God to man? Christ, you see? So it's, those are two possible ways to reconcile this, but I get it's a difficult text, and I can totally see why someone would come to a different conclusion. Now let's go on 
uh, to a additional point that I want you to look at. I want you to skip down to verse 4. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4. It says, now consider, look at this. It says, now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. So the, the author of Hebrews here is emphasizing the greatness of Melchizedek. You see that? How great was this man who even Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Now that jumps out to me, but it might not jump out to you, and that's okay. Because someone else pointed it out to me, and I thought it was profound. Go study the book of Hebrews. There's only one person ever exalted in the book of Hebrews, and his name is Jesus. Chapter 1, he, Jesus is compared to angels. Angels are cool, angels are nice, but nothing like Jesus, right? Isn't that what chapter 1 says? Then he goes on to compare Jesus with Moses. Moses was faithful in God's house, but this belongs to Christ. It's Christ's house. Joshua is great. Some of you may want to name your kids after Joshua. He's great, but he doesn't bring deliverance like Jesus does, right? So all throughout the book of Hebrews, even if you get to the very end, he goes and compares Jesus's blood with Abel's blood. Abel's blood is innocent, but it's nothing like Jesus's blood. Search the scriptures. See if this is so. All throughout the book of Hebrews, there's only one person exalted, and that's Jesus, unless Melchizedek is not Jesus. Because here, look what he says. Look at the text again. Consider how great this man was. Who? Melchizedek. So why is the author of Hebrews exalting Melchizedek, a Canaanite priest that we know nothing about? I would argue that this points to a very consistent theme that he's always exalting Jesus. And in fact, Melchizedek is a Christophany. All right, let's go down to verse 7 and 8. 7 and 8. This, to me, seals the deal. Now, it is beyond all contradiction that the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receives tithes, but there he receives them to whom it is witness that he lives. So the connection between verse 4 all the way down to verse 8 is he, he begins with, consider how great this man Melchizedek was. And then he compares the Aaronic priesthood to uh, Melchizedek and so forth and so on. But then in verse 7, he says, look, Melchizedek is obviously better than Abraham because the lesser is blessed by the better. And Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. But, but here, I want you to see this. Here's what he says right after that. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. Now, I take that this is a commentary about what happened in the case of Abraham and Melchizedek. And there he receives them. Who's the them? I would say there Melchizedek received the tithe. Here, mortal men receive tithes. But there, in the case of Melchizedek, he received them to whom it is witness that he, Melchizedek, lives. This is the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. And so in light of that, to me, uh, there's only one immortal priesthood. There's only one person who forever lives and forever reigns, and of course, that is Jesus Christ. So for all of these reasons, this is why I ultimately believe that Melchizedek is, in fact, a Christophany. Now, if you disagree with that, that's perfectly fine. Because you can go back to the very beginning of the sermon and get the main point. And here's the main point. That Jesus Christ priesthood, who is explicitly Psalm 110, and the order of Melchizedek is superior to the Aaronic priesthood. That's the main point. That Jesus priesthood is greater than the Aaronic priesthood. He is our great high priest. Don't think you need to go back to the old high priest. 
But in between that, he says some very interesting things that we have tried to flush out and consider today in the tiny little bit of time that I had. And I would say, to your consideration, search the scriptures and see if these things are so. Am I dogmatic? No. Will I pray to Melchizedek? No. Never have, never will. I might be wrong. I'm not praying to Melchizedek. I'm praying to Jesus Christ. But if you ask me, right now, I currently believe he's probably a Christophany. I don't pray to any Christophanies, by the way. Do you? I don't pray to Christophanies. I pray to Jesus. And I encourage you to do so as well. So let me wrap this up and give you uh, my seven, eight-point arguments uh, of why I think that uh, Melchizedek is probably Christophany. Number one, it was recognized by some pre-Christian Jews that Melchizedek was a theophany or Christophany. So this idea that Melchizedek was a divine person, second person of Trinity, God, was already was already there in Jewish thought prior to the writing of the New Testament. And I would simply say to this, if that view was out there among the Jewish people and they were to read Hebrews chapter 7, what would they conclude? You, you see what I'm saying? I think a lot of us come to Hebrews chapter 7, we already know the answer. We already know that Melchizedek can't be a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. We already know that. And so then we make the text fit, or that's what I would argue, uh, and we come to that conclusion. But if you didn't know that, and you had multiple views, he could be Christ, he could be divine person, he could not, and you would read Hebrews chapter 7, what would you conclude? I conclude that he's arguing that he's a Christophany. Number two, if all I had is the Old Testament, I personally would believe that the data points to, in fact, Melchizedek is a Christophany. Point number three, the literal description of Melchizedek as someone who has no parents, no genealogy, who is an eternal being with an eternal priesthood, can only describe Christ. Only. Therefore, he must be Christophany. Number four, the language of him being like the Son of God does not eliminate the possibility of him being a Christophany, but I will admit it does challenge that view. Number five, in the book of Hebrews, only Christ is exalted, and yet without a shadow of a doubt, this man, Melchizedek, is exalted in chapter 7. And I would say that best fits with the fact that Melchizedek is, in fact, Jesus Christ. Point number 7, I think that Hebrews 7 and 8 explicitly identify Melchizedek as a mortal and an eternal priest who continues to live, which cannot possibly refer to anyone other than the exalted Christ. Point number 7, I'm almost done. I got one more point, 7 and 8. Point number 7, I don't share an anti-supernatural worldview. Right? I don't. I believe that there's God, and there's demons, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff we don't know about. I can't read the Bible possibly and conclude that it's just us and God, or that we're just bodies without souls. No, I believe we have souls. I believe there's a whole bunch of souls out there. I believe in hell. I believe in heaven. I believe in a supernatural worldview. So none of this weirds me out. May weird you out. Don't weird me out. I believe that, in fact, God appeared in the Old Testament, and he might have appeared in the form of Melchizedek. And number eight, and finally, and I'm done, I think the plain meaning of both Genesis and Hebrews is, in fact, that Jesus is Melchizedek. So I just bring that to your attention. Consider that. Consider these things. Why would I do a sermon like this? Because it's in the text. Sorry, I had to preach a sermon because it was in the text and we had to deal with the issue. Okay? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, I pray that we would be people of charity. I am sure that there are some, if not many, who disagree with these conclusions. And Lord, I pray that uh, they would just consider these things, search the scriptures, find out for themselves who they think this man, Melchizedek, was. All we know for sure explicitly says that he is such a great man, so great, so much greater than Abraham. And I pray that you would put it on these people's hearts to search your scriptures, to long for truth, to care about the meat of the word, to not simply say, who cares, and then go off and be so entertained and so fascinated about these various details about things of the world. I pray that we'd all be fascinated about the word of God and about the truth that is found in your word. Bless this sermon to the edification of your people and to cause us all to love you with heart, soul, mind, and strength.
praise in Jesus' name. Amen.